0: Will you take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 14? If you haven't been with us, it is our practice to go through whatever book of the Bible we are studying, verse by verse. And we have been in 1 Corinthians now for many months, and we now come to 1 Corinthians chapter 14... We're going to bite off a large chunk this morning because they all kind of fit together and they're not too technical. So I'm going to read to you the first 19 verses that we will look at this morning. 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 1. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to to God for no one understands but in his spirit he speaks mysteries but one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself but one who prophesies edifies the church now i wish that you all spoke in tongues but Even more that ye would prophesy, and greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what shall I profit you, unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, In producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the notes, in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, perhaps, a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I shall pray with the spirit and I shall pray with the mind also. I shall sing with the spirit and I shall sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks? Since he does not know what you are saying. For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul was deeply burdened for the church at Corinth. Corinth. He founded the church, and he was concerned about their pagan background, as you will recall. That culture contributed to all manner of difficulties in that church body. Worldliness, immorality, sectarian rivalries, spiritual immaturity was rampant. But also, the church was filled with unbridled emotionalism and, and Chaotic worship services. The people had deceived themselves into thinking that this ecstatic speech and emotionalism made them spiritual. They were used to erotic religion, which the Greeks called eros. We get our English word erotic from that. It means to desire, to desire for ecstasy, to experience the ultimate pleasures of subjective feelings. So think about it. Prior to coming to faith in Christ, they all knew and practiced the pagan mystery religions of their culture. And as we have studied, all of that was rooted in the mother-son fertility cult, God and goddess worship of ancient Babylonian cultism that was at the Tower of Babel. You will recall that these people believed in sexual ecstasia. We get our word "ecstasy" from that, where they would get all worked up into an emotional frenzy in their services, their pagan services. They would have hypnotic chants and ceremonies until they finally came to a, a semi-conscious, euphoric feeling of oneness with the god or the goddess that they worshipped. And then, ultimately, as you can imagine, since this is spawned of Satan, it ended up in. A sexual orgy. They also believed in enthusiasmos. We get our word enthusiasm from that, and this involved similar types of things: frenzied formulas, and foretelling, and divination, revelatory dreams and visions that people were seeing. And by the way, both both ecstasy and enthusiasmos are the distinguishing marks of the charismatic and Pentecostal movements. So it would be no surprise that out of this bizarre milieu of paganism that is so appealing to the fallen flesh, that these people would come to Christ and bring the perversions of that background into the church, and therefore pervert the true and miraculous gift of languages, which, as we have studied, is that... Supernatural ability to speak in a foreign language that you had not previously learned, so that and they, they were designed to to um, proclaim the truths of the new covenant to the early church, to validate the messenger and the message a gift that was also accompanied by other signs and wonders. And you will recall, especially like in Acts 2, that where there were multiple ethnicities there with multiple languages, we read in the text that everyone understood in their own language. So this was a blessed gift that God gave to the early church to establish it in the truth, Uh, a gift that has since ceased on its own accord, as we studied in great detail last week. But many of the new converts in the church associated this gift with the pagan ecstasy that they were accustomed to. Ecstatic, unintelligible speech that the, the Greco-Romans called glossus leilin, which means to speak in tongues. And these pagan worshipers would as I've already said, to some extent, they get worked up in this, in this emotional ecstasy spouting unintelligible gibberish. And the term ecstasy literally, by the way, means to get out of yourself. And that's what they would do. They would enter into an alternate state of consciousness, and they would lose control of themselves. And in that way, they believed they were communing with their gods and goddesses. And like all satanic counterfeits, it was superstitious and false worship to false gods that caused them to feel spiritual. People do different types of things today. They light candles, they they rub on little beads, or they repeat certain forms of liturgy or chants or so forth. But all of this was also a way of, therefore, self-gratification you're feeling good about yourself as you're worshiping. But as we've seen in what Paul has said thus far and what he will say today even more, it was a way for people to show off. It kind of reminds me, and maybe I'm saying this is because I absolutely cannot dance, nor do I care to. My grandchildren will tell you that that's true. But when I see people on a dance floor that don't know how to dance, and I mean the, this goofy, crazy dance type stuff, People are showing off. They're trying to show their moves. That's what was going on in the church at Corinth. And Many of the folks in Corinth had seen the true gift. And it must have been a miraculous thing to have these different languages, these people coming to faith in Christ, and they're wanting to hear the truths of the word of God. And Paul had the gift, and he could speak in all of their languages, and other people could too. It must have been an amazing thing. And so some of these people wanted the same recognition. So they created their own version, a counterfeit version of the true gift. It was nothing more than unintelligible glossolalia, the type of thing that the pagans would do. So their pu- public worship services were characterized by, by chaos. It, it was just kind of a chaotic freak show, a bizarre mixture of paganism and Christianity. And folks, it was utterly bereft of agape love. That is committed to building up the saints rather than to somehow outdo each other. And again, we see this in a lot of, a lot of churches that believe in these types of things. And, and I liken it to world wrestling. Everybody knows it's fake, but they get caught up in it. They get lost in the emotion of it all. And it's kind of fun and entertaining and exciting. Well, obviously, there there was no real edification going on in the church because no one could understand what anybody was jabbering. Everyone was speaking at the same time. So it was kind of a competition of contrived spirituality, a cacophony of meaningless emotion. And this is summarized later in what Paul says in his instructions. The true gift of languages were to operate in the church. Notice in verse 26, he says, What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. He says, Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter... He must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. In verse 33, he says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And then he makes a fifth proviso in verse 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. By the way, that last proviso alone would eliminate most of what happens in charismatic and Pentecostal churches today and many other ostensibly Christian churches. So this is what Paul was dealing with. And you will remember that in chapter 12, he instructed them on the the varieties of the spiritual gifts that God has given. And the the whole purpose of that was to to promote unity, not division in the church. And he emphasized why everyone should be humbled and, and content with the gift that God had graciously given them. And then in chapter 13, he shows them a still more excellent way, remember at the end of chapter 13, a more excellent way than desiring the showy gifts to show off. And that way, of course, is the way of love. And now in chapter 14, he returns to this issue of counterfeit tongues. And this morning in these first 19 verses, we will examine them under three very simple headings. We're going to look at love produces edification. Secondly, edification requires comprehension. And finally, unintelligible gibberish is useless. Now, I want this to be immensely practical to us. I know that some of you, in fact, quite a number of you, have come out of these backgrounds. I've heard your stories where you were taken into rooms or you had special meetings where you were taught how to say, woulda shoulda coulda a Yamaha, woulda shoulda coulda a Yamaha, or whatever it is that you were taught to say. And later on you realize, man, I, I'm just making this stuff up. And others of you have never been a part of that, but you've seen that from a distance and, and you know that there's a lot of phony stuff going on there. So you might say, well, why study this chapter? Well, first of all, it's because it's the next chapter in 1 Corinthians, right? But but more importantly, dear friends, you must understand there's an overarching priority that Paul is dealing with here, way beyond the issue of counterfeit tongues. And I want you to hear this. It's the priority of edification. That is the purpose of all of our spiritual gifts, to build one another up in the most holy faith. Now remember, the Corinthians were new believers, and they were, they were immature, they were carnal, they needed to be built up. And they needed to understand the, the, the priority of agape love that, that fuels the, the priority of mutual edification. And certainly we have the same need here at Calvary Bible Church, as does every church. The Corinthians needed therefore clear, understandable instruction and exhortation and encouragement. And Paul emphasizes the priority of this in verses 3 and 4 and 5. He then illustrates it in verses 6 through 11. He mentions it again in verse 12. Notice what he says there. Since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. And so it goes for the rest of the chapter. So, beloved, herein is the practical nature of this chapter. And as we begin to go through it, you want to ask yourself the question, what is my attitude when I come to church on Sunday morning to worship the Lord? What is the prayer of my heart? Is it that I might maximize my spiritual gift by the power of the Spirit to help build up others in the body? Or is my attitude one of, well, I I hope the church meets my needs and expectations today, Sometimes those sermons just don't scratch me where I itch, you know. And I don't like some of the songs they sing. I, I'm I'm not experiencing the type of encouragement that I think I need I need to feel so I can feel good about my religion. Or, yeah, you know, Sunday school's not really my thing, fellowship groups, all that type of stuff. And, and you know, my kids aren't really too happy with what's going on in student ministries. and, And, frankly, I'm just not connecting with folks like I would like to. Is that your attitude? You know, there's a couple of assumptions behind that kind of thinking. Number one, you're thinking that public worship is all about meeting your needs and your expectations. And number two, you're thinking, well, the the problems I experience have nothing to do with my attitude. It's everybody else's problem. Folks, if this is you, you're never going to be happy in any church. Your priorities are wrong. You have a consumer mindset rather than a mindset that you are a functioning member of a body. To minister to others and to build them up. Public worship is not necessarily a venue to meet your personal needs and your expectations. Now certainly we try to do those things, don't we? It's an opportunity for you to exercise your spiritual gift and build up all of those that God has placed around you. You're part of a body. You're not an independent organ, functioning on its own, waiting for other organs to serve you, if I can use the analogy of the body of Christ. So essentially, Paul is getting them to ask this question. As I exercise my spiritual gifts, am I doing it for my own experience of worship, or am I doing it for the purpose of edification, for building up those around me? Now, this was a radically new way of thinking for the Corinthians. This was completely foreign to them because they were selfish, they were self-absorbed, they were self-centered. And again, they thought that speaking ecstatic gibberish was the measure of ultimate spirituality. By the way, I've heard this many times. People have told me, well, you know, speaking in tongues is for the spiritually mature. I've heard that so many times. But Paul is saying that edification is the measure of of spirituality using our gifts to build one another up you know many times people will come to church and maybe it's this is some of you come to church with that kind of an attitude with basically no thought of well you know i'm really here by god's grace to build up others And so what you end up doing is you stick to yourself, you talk with the same people, you never get to know anybody else, you never engage in intentional fellowship. And So you have that consumer mentality. That's what Paul is dealing with. So let's look first at this idea of how love produces edification, the first point in our little outline. Notice in verse 1, first two words, pursue love comes from a Greek word dioko Uh, it means to strive after something as though you're trying to catch it it's the idea of you, you need to hunt for love you need to chase after opportunities to love those in your church family it's a verb in the present tense so it's the idea of habitual action this needs to be a way of life for you now this should be no surprise Because he just spent a whole chapter on what love is, how it acts, and why it must be the uncompromising priority of every believer. So he's saying, Corinthians, in everything that you do, as you come together, you need to ask the question, am I ministering to those that God has placed around me? Am I exercising my spiritual gift for that purpose? Am I doing this with a zeal to love my brothers in Christ and my sisters in Christ? Am I habitually pursuing love resulting in an ardent, intense determination to build them up in Christ? When I was growing up, we used to have bird dogs. We hunted fail, quail and pheasant and chucker all the time. And one thing that we learned about our bird dogs is that They hunt birds, and if you're not careful, they will run themselves to death. They are so passionate about it. My bird dogs would not just stand out in the field and wait for the quail or the pheasants to come to them and then pout and whine because they didn't and walk back to the truck. Nor would they walk out into the field strutting their stuff and doing points to show off. Instead, what they would do is pursue their prey. I know the analogy breaks down a little bit here. We're not pursuing prey, but we're to pursue love. I mean, when we come to church, we need to be intentional in our fellowship. We need to look for ways to serve one another, to get to know one another. Romans 14, verse 19, pursue the things which make for peace and the building up for one another. There's like 40-something one another's in Scripture. Romans 15, 14, admonish one another is one of them. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, the idea of bearing one another's burdens of sin. You see, folks, worship services were never intended to be opportunities for personal fulfillment, for for self-gratification, to to, to somehow meet individual personal needs, even though in many ways that's going to happen. Worship is all about paying homage to the Most High God and serving Him by serving His people. That's why we have been gifted. We're part of a body. A kidney cannot function if it just isolates itself. It needs the body, and the body needs the kidney. And many Christians treat their church, frankly, like not like a body, but kind of like a fancy restaurant. You know, I'm only going to go... When, when I'm, when I'm kind of into that thing and I'm in the mood, when it's convenient, and when I go I want to kind of show off my new outfit or my latest tattoo or, or whatever it is. Uh, just a mindless, a mindless religious consumerism. Folks, the Bible knows nothing of that. And in many ways that's what was going on in Corinth. Oh, and I can hear it, yes, but I don't like this or that at the church. Or I, I, I'm just not feeling it. I just don't know if the church is really meeting the needs of my family. I'm not getting the attention I deserve, etc. Folks, if, if, if you're plagued with that kind of thinking, may I humbly suggest to you to shift your focus and start pursuing love. Look around you. Look at all the people that God has placed in the sphere of your influence. Why has he done that? It's for you to love them. Beloved, selfishness can never be satisfied. doesn't matter who you marry, where you work, where you go to church, who your friends are. If you think about it, selfishness is, is the monster of discontent. It is the demon of criticism. It is the fiend of conflict. And unless you kill it, it will kill you. That's what was going on in Corinth. So he says, pursue love. Yet, desire earnestly spiritual gifts but especially that you may prophesy. Now, obviously, there's nothing wrong with spiritual gifts. Paul makes that clear. They're they're vital to the life of the body. 1 Corinthians 12 is all about that. He's saying, desire them. I mean, look for opportunities to use them, opportunities for you and your family to be blessed, for your children to be blessed by the gifts of others. Avail yourselves of those things, but don't envy what other people have. Don't misuse your gifts for spiritual self-gratification or concoct some phony gift to show off. Desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. You will remember that the term prophesy refers to the divine enablement to proclaim the scriptures. It was a permanent edifying gift that still exists today in many forms. All of you can proclaim the scriptures in various ways. The whole church should desire this gift more than any of the others. Why? Because the Spirit uses it to clearly impart divine truth to save and to sanctify. Unlike the phony tongues, for example, that they were practicing that are utterly useless. You go on to the internet or the, the radio, and you, there, there are millions of excellent sermons available to you. You won't hear, at least I don't think, and certainly nobody is going to listen to millions of recordings of ecstatic speech. It's meaningless. Verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. I think to God can be better translated to a God. Technically... Uh, it's what we call an anarthrous construction. There's no definite article. There's no the there. So it is an indefinite noun that lacks unique referential identity. And so th- 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 think about the context again. He's concerned about the, these people. They're into these pagan mystery religions. They're worshiping all these phony gods. And they've incorporated this into their worship services with all of this meaningless, useless, unintelligible stuff. And as we look about it and look at it in Scripture, there's nowhere in Scripture that we see anyone speaking to God in such ways. But pagans would do it all the time." He goes on to say, "For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries, His spirit, referring to his human spirit, the rational soul of man, as implied by the Greek, is what we call the locative case. It's not referring to the Holy Spirit. This type of person is speaking mysteries. These pagan mysteries that that no one can understand. They don't even exist. Moreover, notice that he says, one who speaks in a tongue. I want you to see this very clearly because this is an interpretive key to understanding this whole chapter. Notice tongue is in the singular. In verses 2 and 4, Tongue is singular, referring to the counterfeit gibberish. We see it in verses 13, 14, 19, and 27. I mean, gibberish is gibberish. There's no such thing as gibberishes. So Paul speaks of it in the singular. However, when he speaks of the legitimate gift of language, he uses the plural, the gift of tongues. It's in the plural as we see in verse 6, verse 18, 22, 23, and 39. The only exception is in verse 27, where the singular is used to refer to a single man speaking a single genuine language. So in verse 2, he's basically saying, for one who speaks in a tongue, in other words, ecstatic gibberish, it's singular, does not speak to men, but to a God, a false God that doesn't exist. For no one understands, but in his spirit, he speaks mysteries. These pagan mysteries that he doesn't even understand, that don't even exist. You're speaking this unintelligible, irrational gibberish. But, and here's the contrast in verse 3. One who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Folks, this is what love pursues. This is what spiritual gifts are all about. And then he uses sarcasm. Paul does this quite a bit. Verse 4 One who speaks in a tongue, there it is, singular, ecstatic gibberish, edifies himself. But one who prophesies edifies the church. By the way, elsewhere, he's going to make it clear that even the true gift of languages must be interpreted for the rest of the congregation to understand. I I have spoken in places around the world where there are multiple languages present. I think the most, there were eight languages And so I would speak, and you would hear eight different interpreters standing up with their little group, and you'd hear this cacophony. of Couldn't understand any of it, but they could. So it's very important. But with unintelligible gibberish, not even the worshiper knows what they're saying. So Paul said, you're just edifying yourself. You're just building yourself up. By the way, verse 4 is not some... Subtle, indirect reference that advocates a private, personal prayer language, as many Charismatics and Pentecostals claim. I mean, folks, that would... I mean, you have to do exegetical gymnastics to come up with that, not to mention completely prostitute your hermeneutics. There there is nothing in the context of any of this. I mean, he's talking about the true gift... That will edify the body of Christ. It's not about edifying yourself. And again, this is sarcasm in verse four. One who speaks in a tongue, the ecstatic gibberish, edifies himself. In other words, your contrived glossolalia just feeds your own pride. It, it, it's not functioning in a way that is pursuing love and building up others in the body. But he says, one who prophesies, in other words, one who speaks divine revelation in a way that is clear and understandable edifies the church. Verse five. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues. There's the plural. There's the gift of true languages. Now obviously he's not literally saying eh, it's just so sad. I just wish you all spoke in tongues. That's not his, what he's referring to here. I mean, he knows, according to chapter 12 and verse 11, that it's the Spirit who, quote, works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So what he's saying here is just, he's just merely affirming the importance of the true gift. He's not demeaning it. He's not undervaluing it. But he says, "But but I wish even more that you would prophesy. And, of course, the reason for that is so that everyone could be built up. And he says, and greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the, true, so that the church may receive edifying. So, in other words, even a person with the true gift of tongues needed to have it interpreted so that the message could be shared to everyone if you're in a group and it's really an amazing thing if you're in a group and suddenly somebody raises their hand and they looks at me and they speak Ukrainian and I don't speak Ukrainian they have to ask the interpreter what the question is he has to interpret it and then ask me in English then I will answer the interpreter he has to interpret it back to the Ukrainian all right that's how the body is edified but if that's not happening it's just chaos it's meaningless So, we've seen, first of all, that love produces edification. Notice, he goes next to edification requires comprehension, beginning in verse 6. And once again, Paul is going to emphasize the secondary importance of tongues compared with prophecy. In verse 6, he says, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, there's the plural, the true gift of languages, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Of course, the answer is it, it, it's nothing if, if nobody can understand it. There's no edification unless it's comprehended. And Paul's arguments, therefore, by the way, rules out once again this idea of a private prayer language. I, I've talked with people who say, well, You know, I don't do it publicly, but I, I speak in tongues privately with the Lord. I, wh- what are you saying? Why are you doing Where do you see that in the Bible? And they want to come to some of these passages here and they, they, they misinterpret them. And, you know, I mean, wh- wh- where's the edification going on there? And so Paul is saying here, What will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of a knowledge or of a prophecy or of teaching? And then he gives an illustration. Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? I have to think about this for a moment. Imagine giving a bunch of four-year-olds a variety of instruments that they cannot play and tell them to start playing. Obviously, no one's going to benefit from that concert even though I'm sure it would be done with great enthusiasm and emotion. He gives a second illustration for, if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? That makes sense. I mean, if the sounds of the bugle are unintelligible, they're uncertain, the soldiers won't know what to do. So in verse 9, he says, so also you. Unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, the term can be translated intelligible. Understandable. How will it be known what is spoken? For you're speaking into the air. In other words, what you're saying is it's fruitless, it's pointless. You're just talking to the wind. MacArthur made this observation: "Quote. It is incredible that some Christians put a premium on private or in mass unintelligible utterances that no one, including the speaker, can even attempt to understand. In some instances." What is claimed to be an interpretation has been proved to have no relationship with what was spoken. Persons who have tested an interpreter by speaking in Hebrew or another language known to them, but unknown by the interpreter, have had their words, quote, translated into messages that had absolutely no correspondence to what was spoken. Like some of the Corinthians, such abusers not only put glorification above the edification of the church, but add deception to the abuse, end quote. I remember years ago when I studied at Moody Bible Institute, uh, we did experiments with this and we had, we had so many foreign students there that could speak other languages and they would go and they would speak other languages, have them interpreted, have it recorded and, and the interpretation had nothing to do with what they said. It was always some grandiose platitude like God is doing some marvelous work among his people here today or very shortly or whatever. Paul continues his argument in verse 10. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. Certainly we know that. They all have different sounds, but they're all understood by those who speak them. Verse 11, if then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. Barbarian comes from a Greek word, barbaros. It's a onomatopoic word, a word that is formed from, from a, a sound associated with its name. Uh, we use those words like, I don't know, sizzle, pop, bang, um, clang, boom, that type of thing. And barbaros in Greek is derived from two syllables, barbar. And the point that he's making here is if a person doesn't know a language, it just sounds like bar, 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 bar. Or as we might say, blah, 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 yada, 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 jabba, 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 that type of thing. So even when one with the true gift of tongues is speaking, it has to be interpreted. Otherwise, it's meaningless. And by implication, this pagan-like, unintelligible, gibberish... Is meaningless. It may be self-gratifying. It may cause you to think that you're spiritual, but it is not edifying. It is not the product of pursuing love. It's the product, frankly, of self-love. Verse 12, so also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. He says, seek, present tense, habitual action. This needs to be the priority of your life constantly. To be zealous, to have a burning concern for something. And what is that? To abound. Abound literally means for something to exist in large quantities. You're to have a a burning desire for your love to exist in large quantities for the edification of the church. And once again, the intended purpose of the true gift was to edify the body of Christ, not to gratify the flesh. You, you see, it was for public, not private use. Paul is simply saying, folks, it's, it's great that you're zealous for spiritual gifts. You know, I, I applaud that, but please use them properly to build each other up in the church. And beloved, don't miss this. The characteristic of the true gift of languages that God gave the early church beginning at Pentecost was a blessed thing. And it was always intelligible language that had to be interpreted. God did not give two different types of language, two different types of gifts. One that could be understood, but the other one some kind of incomprehensible gibberish, irrational, ecstatic, glossolalia. He didn't do that. So Paul is saying, yes, be zealous of spiritual gifts, but but seek to abound for the edification of the church. That's the priority. So we've seen, number one, that love produces edification, and number two, edification requires comprehension, but finally, unintelligible gibberish is useless, beginning in verse 13. And here he continues with his sarcasm. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue, there's the singular, the counterfeit gift, pray that he may interpret. Obviously, he can't. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit, which could be translated my breath, my human spirit, you know, even my breath, it's praying, but my mind is unfruitful. By the way, spirit cannot be a reference here to the Holy Spirit, as many charismatics claim. Because that would also mean that the Holy Spirit would be praying in such a way as to bypass the mind. I mean, that that is totally foreign to Scripture. And there's no work of the Holy Spirit that is unfruitful. Verse 15, what is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Bottom line, folks, there is just no place for this ecstatic, unintelligible gibberish that bypasses the mind. And, and, and again, this, this rules out this, this mindless prayer language. Verse 16, otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen? Amen. Another interesting statement. The term ungifted, (idiates) in the original language, ultimately we get our word idiot from that, but it meant the uninitiated. It referred to someone who is not a member of a group and therefore is unlearned in the teachings of that group. It's the ignorant person, not that they're slow mentally, they, they just don't know. How can the ungifted person say the Amen. Now, the amen was that, that, that Hebrew expression that they used. So let it be that type of thing. It was a common expression in Judaism to express just the extraordinary value attached to a, to a specific utterance, a, a confession of the praise and blessing of God upon what was being said. I mean, if the, if the ungifted person, the, the person that's, that, that's not a part of this, if they don't know what you're saying, how, how can they say the amen? at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying. So obvious. Verse 17, for you are giving thanks well enough. In other words, that that may be what you think you're doing in your mind, but the other person is not edified. And again, the spiritual gifts are for the edification of the body. Verse 18, I thank God I speak in tongues. There's the plural, there's the true gift, I speak in tongues more than you all. Obviously, he had that gift. By the way, it's interesting to note that he never mentions this anywhere else in any of his writings. Why? I believe because he knew that it's just far less important than the other gifts that God gave to edify the saints. Plus, he knew that it was going to cease on its own as it has. Verse 19, however, in the church, he says, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. There's the singular, once again, the ecstatic gibberish. I mean, folks, how on earth can unsaved people understand the gospel with people speaking that way? And how on earth can believers be encouraged and be equipped and be exhorted and and just be built up when they're hearing a myriad of unintelligible syllables? Now, Paul knew the true gift of languages was going to cease on their own accord. Chapter 13, verse 8, we studied that. So I want you to understand something very important as I close this morning. Chapter 14 is not an instruction manual on how the true gift of languages are to be regulated in the church today. I mean, they they don't exist today. His purpose here was even larger than addressing this this self-centered misuse of the gift with the the counterfeit gibberish, which he's obviously done very, very clearly. The larger purpose of this whole chapter, as we're we're seeing today and as we will see in the weeks to come, was the priority of edification as a function of love. That's what the spiritual gifts are all about. Corinthians, are you pursuing love? Folks at Calvary Bible Church, are you pursuing love by using your gifts? And this would require, obviously, the proper use of all the spiritual gifts that The Spirit of God has given to the saints. Remember in verse 12, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Now, I rejoice knowing that here, this dear apostle who is the pastor of these precious saints, and by the way, we're going to meet them someday. We're going to know their name. They're going to know your name. Can you believe that? What a day that will be. But there's no further mention of this problem anywhere in Paul's epistles to the Romans or anywhere else in the New Testament. So there's an indication that they got the message. Boy, with just what I've told you so far, I mean, I would get the message like, you know, we need to stop this. Guilty, sorry, repent, Let's straighten up here. And obviously they did that. But what we can derive here, even from what we're seeing thus far, are some things of very practical of a very practical nature? First of all, folks, there, there's no place for self-centered, unbridled emotionalism in the church. There's no place for that. That's a fruit of the flesh, not a fruit of the spirit. And secondly, there's, there's no place for substitute gifts for the purpose of self-gratification or, or even private use. True spiritual gifts. Are for public not private use and they are for the purpose I've said it probably way too many times but I want to get my point across they are for the purpose of building up the body of Christ they are for the purpose of edification so beloved ask yourself this am I living to myself when I come to church or am I committed to pursuing love Do I somehow think that coming to church is all about my own personal experience, my own individual needs? Or do I realize that I'm part of this magnificent, mystical, spiritual organism called the body of Christ, of which Christ is head? And I'm to be functioning as part of that body Am I pursuing love or am I living unto myself? Am I habitually pursuing others in love with an ardent, intense determination to build them up in the body of Christ? Or am I just focusing on myself or or my kids or whatever? I would close by asking you this. Have you contributed to the edification of those that God has placed around you today? You've still got a chance. We're going to close here in a moment because that's the priority. God in his sweet providence has brought you into the sphere of influence of all of these other people. And he has uniquely gifted you to minister to them in ways that maybe nobody else could. And folks, I'll tell you what, when you get serious about living this way, you won't have time to complain about the music or student ministries or a hundred other things that probably need to be fixed, right? I mean, some of it's legitimate, some of it's not. The music's fine, by the way. You know, the preaching needs a little... But you get the point. And as long as you're self-focused, you're going to find things to whine about. And you are never going to be happy. But you get serious about doing what we read about right here in this passage. And everything else changes. So may this be the spirit-empowered zeal of our hearts here at Calvary Bible Church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the great truths that emerge from your word. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, you will cause them to bear much fruit in each of our lives. So that those who are without Christ can see the power of the gospel. They can experience your love as they experience, experience our love for them. And as we communicate to them very clearly the great truths of your word. Continue to bless this church. I thank you for each and every person that's a part of it. May we continue to be united together in love abounding in love with a zeal to use our gifts for your glory as well as for our good i ask in jesus name amen we pray you've been edified by this presentation you've been listening to the teaching ministry of calvary bible church in jolton tennessee for more information on calvary bible church or for more audio please visit our website at cbctn Dot .org